Welcome back to Corium, the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue Emergency Medicine Residency Program. I'm Brian Gaberti, and today we are joined by Dr. Ellen Duncan. Ellen is an assistant professor of emergency medicine and pediatrics at NYU and the associate program director for the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Fellowship. Great to have you, Ellen. Thanks for having me. So you are the perfect person to have on the show to help us dissect one of those ominous and elusive diagnoses that we cannot miss in our pediatric population, the septic joint. So let's prime the discussion with the case. You're in the emergency department when a three-year-old boy comes in with a fever and a limp. His dad says that his right leg has been hurting him for a couple of days, and today he is refusing to bear weight on that leg. So Ellen, what are you thinking about when you see a patient like this? Walk us through it. Sounds like a typical shift in the ED. So there are several things to think about when you see a patient with these symptoms. In a young patient with a limp, we always think about trauma. When we add in fever, though, we need to expand our differential. Two conditions that come to mind for this case are transient synovitis and septic arthritis. Okay, so let's talk about terminology here. Is transient synovitis the same thing as toxic synovitis? One sounds way worse than the other. Yeah, that's right. So they're actually the same thing. I prefer to call it transient synovitis for exactly that reason. So transient synovitis is a common condition that usually affects kids between the ages of 3 and 10, and it usually happens after a viral infection and involves the inflammation in the synovium. It typically resolves on its own without any long-term complications. Okay, I see. So transient synovitis is not too scary. Tell us about septic arthritis. So septic arthritis is an infection of the joint space. A key feature of septic arthritis is that only one joint is involved. So if multiple joints are affected, or if the symptoms migrate between joints, we should think about other conditions like rheumatic fever or even something like parvovirus. Though we often think about septic joint as involving a swollen red joint, this might not always be the case, especially if the infection involves the hip. Something that makes the diagnosis even more difficult is the fact that many patients with septic arthritis are under the age of three and may not actually be able to localize their pain to a specific joint. Now, septic arthritis is one of those pathologies that has that bad combination of being both potentially dangerous and difficult to diagnose. Can you talk more about what it is and how it is diagnosed? Septic arthritis happens when an infection invades the joint space. This most commonly happens by hematogenous spread, but it can also spread from a nearby infection like osteomyelitis or by direct inoculation. The hip and the knee are the most common joints, but other joints may be involved as well. So to start looking for septic arthritis, we start with blood work, including a complete blood count, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, C-reactive protein, and blood cultures. Since Lyme disease can cause joint pain, you should also consider sending Lyme studies while you're getting blood. Okay, so a lot of tests that we're sending off. How do these labs help us distinguish between transient synovitis and septic arthritis? Well, patients with transient synovitis often have only a mild elevation in their inflammatory markers, whereas patients with septic arthritis usually have a more significant elevation. Okay. Thank you. And now moving on to imaging. Are imaging studies helpful here? Absolutely. X-rays are useful, including AP and frog leg views for evaluation of the hip, and especially if trauma is on the differential. Ultrasound is also useful for evaluating a joint effusion. MRI can help us look for an associated osteomyelitis, but it's not always available and often requires sedation in younger patients. Okay. And now on to the centerpiece of this discussion, Coker criteria. Can you tell us about that? So the Coker criteria were devised by Dr. Coker in 1999 to differentiate between patients with septic arthritis and transient synovitis, specifically of the hip. The criteria here include a history of a fever above 38.5 Celsius, an inability to bear weight, ESR above 40, and a white blood cell count above 12,000. There are a couple of important things to remember. First, these were developed specifically for septic arthritis of the hip. Also, although the initial study found a 99.6% risk of septic arthritis in patients who met all four criteria, a later validation study found that this risk was only 59%. 
Regardless, the Coker criteria are a useful starting point in clinical decision making, even if a further workup is needed to make a diagnosis. Okay, so a lot covered so far. Let's do a quick recap. A patient presents with signs and symptoms concerning for septic arthritis. We are ordering labs, including CBC, inflammatory markers, blood cultures, maybe Lyme serologies. And for imaging, we are typically getting an x-ray of the affected joint and maybe doing an ultrasound to evaluate for an effusion. Once we have the labs, we can determine how many of the COCA criteria are met, which include fever, inability to bear weight, elevated sed rate, and leukocytosis to help us determine our level of suspicion for an infected joint. Now, the diagnosis of septic arthritis is suspected. What are the next steps? So septic arthritis is a medical emergency with a high morbidity, so the orthopedic team should be consulted promptly. Joint fluid aspiration is required for the diagnosis and should not be delayed if septic arthritis is suspected. Fluid should be sent for cell count, gram stain, glucose, culture, and PCR if available. Patients with septic arthritis will often have a white blood cell count greater than 50,000 with more than 90% neutrophils in the joint fluid. While some smaller joints like the knee, the wrist, and the ankle can be drained and possibly irrigated, larger joints like the hip and the shoulder may require more extensive joint washouts. So we've gotten our inflammatory markers, we've consulted orthopedics, and the joint tap looks suspicious for bacterial septic arthritis. What kinds of organisms are we targeting with our antibiotics? Septic arthritis is most commonly caused by bacterial infection. Staph aureus is the most common organism overall, but the other bacteria associated with septic arthritis vary depending on the age of the child. In school-aged children, we should think about strep pyogenes, strep pneumo, and haemophilus influenzae. In the preschool-aged child, like our patient, we should also consider Kingella kingae. And what about other ages? What are the other organisms that we should think of? In older children, we may still see staph and strep, but there are other potential bacteria, including Borrelia burgdorferi, Neisseria gonorrhea, and Chlamydia trachomatis. Many of these will have an associated rash, so make sure to do a detailed physical exam. In neonates, septic arthritis is most often caused by staph, group B strep, and gram-negative rods. And this is an especially tricky age group to diagnose because only half of the patients will have fever. And what antibiotics are we using to cover those? Empiric antibiotic therapy should be targeted to the most likely organisms and, importantly, should not be delayed if arthrocentesis can't be performed right away. If left untreated, patients can develop complications like lingering arthritis. Neonates should get vancomycin and cefepime. Children between one month and four years should be treated with vanc and ceftriaxone, which covers the gram-negative kingella, and children age five and older should receive vanco. Ceftriaxone can be added in the older patients if they have a history of sickle cell disease or are immunocompromised, or if there's significant concern for Lyme disease or an STI. And tell us about the role of the cultures. How are they helpful in narrowing the antibiotics later on? So cultures are actually only positive in 50 to 60% of cases, and that's important to remember. More recently, synovial fluid PCR studies have been developed to test for the most common bacteria, and these tests can actually help narrow antibiotic treatment. Okay, that is a great summary on how we approach a pediatric patient with septic joint. Going back to our case, tell us what happened with our patient. Of course. In our case, the patient actually only had mild inflammation of the inflammatory markers and received treatment with Motrin. The diagnosis of transient synovitis was made and the patient was discharged home with appropriate instructions. All right, great. So he'll be back on the monkey bars in no time. Let's go over some take-home points. First, limp in the pediatric population can commonly be transient synovitis, but we should always consider septic arthritis. Some clues in the history and physical that would point you towards septic arthritis include fever, refusal to bear weight, and limited range of motion on exam. We are going to have to get labs here, including CBC, inflammatory markers, and preoperative labs, along with an x-ray and possibly an ultrasound. Croker criteria is one tool that can help us determine if this patient is going to require a TAP, and if one is required, arthrocentesis is the gold standard for diagnosis. But 
and this is an important point, antibiotics should be started promptly if the diagnosis is suspected. The choice of antibiotics is dependent on age group. Barring an allergy, neonates get vancomycin and cefepime. Kids 1 through 4 years old get vancomycin and ceftriaxone, and older than 5 are going to be getting vancomycin, and we're adding on ceftriaxone if they have sickle cell disease, are immunocompromised, or are worried about Lyme disease or a sexually transmitted infection. And is the case with most anything related to antibiotics, it's not one size fits all. So always cross-check with your institutional preferences. Okay, so that's going to do it for this episode. Check out the show notes for a quick summary of this episode, along with a chart of COCA criteria. Ellen, thank you so much for being on the show, and we look forward to more episodes with you. Thanks for having me.